Amen. He is certainly worthy of our praise, our exaltation, our worship. Let's continue our worship now as we turn into uh, his holy and inspired word. Genesis chapter 1, if you'd please turn there for the scripture reading. Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. And if you'd please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Genesis. It's the first one. First chapter, verses 1 and 2. This is God's word. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was formless and void. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would be blessed by the reading of your word this morning that you would be glorified in our time together and that you would change hearts so we can live for you and you alone. We love you, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. I want to start our time together by having you turn to the book of Job. Job. I want to spend some considerable time here this morning because I think it will be a tremendous help to us as we again dive into the opening verses of the opening chapter of the opening book of the Bible, because there has been a ton, and I mean a ton, of material produced on this chapter, and specifically on the first two verses, with much of it being, unfortunately, speculative, theoretical. So I just want to kind of set the tone this morning. I want to set the foundation for the approach that I feel would be most helpful for us to take in our consideration of this second verse, and really over the next 11 chapters we'll be looking at together over the coming year. Is everyone to the book of Job? Good. Job is a unique, unique book uh, in the scriptures in a number of ways. Many believe it's the oldest book of the Bible, that it was written before Moses' time, but we don't know that for sure. The human author isn't named. Was it Job himself? Was it Moses, maybe? Was it Isaiah? Maybe Solomon? We just don't know. Really, other than some brief geographical indicators and cultural norms that align with the patriarchal period of Abraham and others, we don't have much historical context at all. However, because some of those indicators are present, we do indeed know that it is historical. Okay? It's an actual historical account of an actual man named Job who lived in an actual city with actual friends and family. He had actual enemies. They're mentioned. We know that this was a man who actually experienced some of the worst sufferings imaginable. Loss of reputation, loss of wealth, loss of health, and even the loss of his loved ones, his own children. All of them. It's a book replete with suffering. In fact, the majority, the overwhelming majority of this historical account details the in-depth conversations between Job and his four friends, his four counselors, Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar, and Elihu, specifically about his suffering, about his afflictions, and God's involvement or seemingly non-involvement with him throughout the process. More on them in a moment. But not before we mention another unique feature about Job, and that is, similar to what we heard from Revelation 4 last week, we are given a glimpse into heaven, into the throne room of heaven, before the throne of God above. We see it right here in Job chapter 1. 
In fact, the first two chapters contain an absolutely fascinating dialogue in heaven between God and Satan, the adversary, the accuser, the opponent, the arch enemy of all things good, of all things God, the devil, Satan, as he now stands in the very presence of God doing what he does best. Look at the sixth verse with me. Now, it was the day that the sons of God came to stand before Yahweh. Those are angels in heaven. And one angel in particular, Satan, also came among them. Incredible that we get to hear this. Verse 7. And Yahweh said to Satan, from where do you come? Then Satan answered Yahweh and said, from roaming about on the earth, walking around on it. Then Yahweh said to Satan, have you set your heart upon my servant Job? Have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning, turning away from evil. Now again, just a quick synopsis here. We could spend years in Job, but just for our time together this morning, Satan and God have this heavenly discourse. Maybe better to say this discourse in heaven. Uh, Satan essentially answers God's question here by saying, yeah, Job only serves you because you've blessed him so abundantly. His hand has prospered in every way. You've got a hedge of protection around him. Of course he serves you. To which Yahweh replies, behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only do not set forth your hand toward him. In other words, oh yeah? You think that's why he serves me? Because of stuff? Because of my protection, blessings? Okay, Satan, who is in absolute submission to God, by the way, has to get permission from God to do anything. Remember that. Okay, Satan, go ahead and take it all away from him, but spare his life. You will not kill him. So Satan does. He takes away everything. He takes away his land, his wealth, his prominence, his livestock, his servants. A a messenger comes to Job one one day and says, listen, some guys came and they took your oxen. They killed your servants who were tending to them. I alone have escaped to tell you. While that guy's still talking, another guy comes and says, fire came down from heaven, killed all your sheep, killed all your shepherds. I alone have escaped to tell you. While that guy's still speaking, another comes and says, some Chaldeans set up three companies. They took your camels. They struck down the young men with the edge of the sword. I alone have escaped to tell you. Verse 18. While this one was still speaking, another also came and said, your sons, your daughters were eating and drinking wine in the house of their brother, the firstborn. Behold, a great wind came from across the wilderness, touched the four corners of the house. It fell on the young people. They died. I alone have escaped to tell you. Job wakes up one morning. It's just a normal day. Suddenly, he's, he's met with tragedy after tragedy after tragedy, calamity from men, calamity from the earth, calamity from the heavens, and just like that, it's all gone. Can you imagine this in your own life? Everything gone the same day? His wife, his wife's still around, as we'll see, but she'll prove to be of little comfort. Yet the writer says, after all this, Job arose, tore his robe, shaved his head, fell to the ground, and worshipped. He said, naked I came from my mother's womb, naked I shall return there. Yahweh gave, Yahweh has taken away. 
Blessed be the name of Yahweh. Through all this, Job did not sin, nor did he give offense to God. Chapter 2, verse 1. Back to the throne room of heaven where Satan again stands before Yahweh. Yahweh says to Satan, where did you come from? Satan answers, from roaming about on the earth, walking about on it, walking around on it. And Yahweh said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God, turning away, all, turning away from evil. And he still holds fast to his integrity. So you incited me against him to swallow him up in vain. And Satan says, yeah, you're right. It was in vain. He did remain faithful, but that's only because he has his health. You touch his skin, you touch his flesh, he'll curse you to your face. God says, behold, he's in your hand. Just don't take his life. Boom. Boils inflicted upon Job from the top of his head to the soles of his feet. This once prominent man, some believe he was a king, this once prominent man now sits atop a heap of ashes using a a piece of broken pot to scrape off the now blistering skin on his arms and legs. Wife comes along and says, do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. Job says, should we accept good from God and not accept calamity? And all this, we're told, Job did not sin with his lips. Then his three buddies come along. At a distance, they see him. Maybe they're squinting. They don't recognize him. What? Who who, who is this? No, it can't be. It can't be Job. They're distraught. They're they're weeping. They're tearing their clothes. They're throwing dust over their head. They're all in mourning. They, They didn't even say anything to him for a whole week because he was in so much pain. They didn't know what to say to him. This is not a good situation for Job, is it? Well, after a week, Job breaks the silence. What follows is a lengthy discourse where he's essentially lamenting his existence. He's lamenting the very day he was born. And these three buddies, these three friends of his, they come along, they end up giving him some of the worst counsel imaginable. Now, anyone who has ever read the book of Job knows that it's perplexing in the sense that at at first glance, it seems like these guys are some of the finest theological scholars and grief counselors in history. I mean, on the surface and from our human perspective, especially our religious human perspective, it seems like a lot of what they say is actually somewhat doctrinally sound and true and right and God-honoring. But by the time you get to the end of the book, you see that that's far from the case. And so... If you're reading this for the first or second time and you're unaware of how it ends, you sit there like, wait, what just happened here? I thought they were saying all the right stuff. I, I thought their words were so spiritual and they're, they're so pious. Uh, they, God is just, they say. Humans are sinful. God is holy. Humans are corrupt. You need to trust God. He's a righteous God. Then they start to stray a bit. You know, Job, considering all this, you must have really done something awful to get on his bad side. You must have really done something to offend him here. You need to find out what this is, and you need to take care of it. Eliphaz says, uh, we know that he would never do this to someone who is innocent and upright. Well, that should have been our first clue. We know that's not true. Yahweh said to Satan, have you set your heart upon my servant Job? For there is none like him in all the earth, blameless and upright. 
fearing God, turning away from evil. Behold, all that he has is in your hand. We know that's not true, Eliphaz. In a corrupted earth, and for a multitude of reasons, bad things do happen to good people. Good people. That's just the reality. But at the end of this book, we, we see the calamities, the catastrophes, and all of this are not even ultimately attributed to Satan. Did you know that? But to Yahweh. Yeah, it says it. Here's how it ends. Job 42, verse 10. Yahweh restored the fortunes of Job when he prayed for his friends. Yahweh increased all that Job had twofold. Then all his brothers and all his sisters and all who had known him before came to him. They ate bread with him in his house. They consoled him and comforted him for all the calamity that Yahweh brought to him. That Yahweh brought on him. Yahweh did it. What do you mean he wouldn't do this to the blameless and upright? He clearly did it. He just said he did it. And and only for reasons that he and he alone knows, likely to shape and mold and conform and instruct Job, as he does in our lives, right? Now, why do I bring this up? Seems like kind of an odd thing to do here. Spend 15 minutes on this. Well, consider this. We have the benefit of reading Job chapters 1 and 2 and 42. But Job, he knew of no such benefit, right? He didn't know. Uh, He had to go through it, questioning God all the way, questioning the justice of God, questioning the uprightness of God, the fairness of God all along the way, demanding answers. Why would you do this to me? Why would you do this to me, God? I've done nothing wrong here. His confidence in God is wavering. He, he's starting to doubt the goodness of God. His, his doubts are growing. And, and all the while, he's having to endure the misguided counsel and persuasion of his friends. Okay? He's having to hear these friends give him this counsel. His friends who were so quick to give him their version of who God was. Their view of who God was instead of the truth of who God was, okay? And, and they were sternly rebuked by the same God when it was all said and done. He was gonna kill them. Why? Because again, they were preaching their view of God. Yahweh said, because you have not spoken of me what is right. These guys were the original, I could never serve a God who, fill in the blank crowd that we hear from so often today. I can never serve a God who allows so much suffering. I can never serve a God who sends people to hell. I can never love a God who chooses whom he will save, and on and on it goes. That's who these guys remind me of. And and Job, you can see him through through various points uh, in this discourse. And like us, at various points in our walk, he seems to start to hear the chatter a little bit. Okay? He starts hearing this bad counsel, and you can see him kind of buying into it a little bit, but defending himself along the way. This self-loathing mixed with self-justification, it hits its peak when he begins to defend his own righteousness at the expense of God's righteousness. He even gets to the point where he demands that God give him an answer for why he's suffering so much. Oh, that I had one to hear me, he says. 
Behold, here's my signature. Let the Almighty answer me. He's presuming upon El Shaddai, upon God Almighty. You will answer me. Another friend comes along, Elihu. He gives some decent counsel. But all of these guys, Job included, for 30-some chapters, seem like they're, they're doing a bunch of talking. Just a bunch of talking without any real solid explanation for what is going on here. Not one of them knows about what we just read about in chapters 1 and 2. They don't know what just happened, this, this heavenly discourse with Satan and Yahweh. They didn't have that knowledge, right? And guess what? Yahweh doesn't even tell him. He doesn't even give Job the reason for his suffering. In fact, he doesn't bring up suffering at all. Instead, he essentially says, where were you when I created all things? Who are you to question me? Uh, Who are you to question how I go about my business sovereignly reigning over my creation? Who are you? In fact, I'll show you exactly what God said. Turn to chapter 38. You can look at it in your, your own Bibles. Don't take my word for it. Job chapter 38. He's silent through almost the entirety of this book. He just lets them rant. He lets them loose. Let's them dig their own pits. Then hear what he says in chapter 38. This will be key. This will be key as we dive into the rest of Genesis chapter 1. Verse 1. Then Yahweh answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Words without knowledge, darkened counsel. What is darkened counsel? What does that mean? The counsel there refers to the Lord's counsel, his divine plan, his divine decrees, which are all perfect, all holy, all righteous. What darkens the Lord's counsel are humanistic false assumptions and subsequent regurgitation of tainted views of his character, okay? mainly perpetuated by false converts who seek to bring the God of the Bible down to our level so that, in the end, they can hold him to the same standards that we hold each other to, thereby justifying their disobedience in areas of life that they've deemed themselves superior to him. Okay? My brothers and sisters, beware of darkened counsel. And beware of words without knowledge. What are words without knowledge? Well, talking like we know exactly how God operates, both inside and outside of his creation. Speaking so matter-of-factly on how we perceive the sovereign God of the heavens and the earth should conduct himself, how we think he ought to conduct himself, when in reality we don't even come close to understanding the complexities of who he is or what he does. We've, we've talked about his, his character for the past few weeks, Genesis 1-1, three weeks. We learned about his infinitude, his self-existence, his eternality, among other attributes. That was like a drop in the ocean. That, those three 50-minute sermons, they were like a single grain of sand taken from all the beaches of the world combined when compared to the unsearchable majesty of God Almighty. Whole volumes, whole works have been devoted to single attributes by some of the most reputable theologians in history, and they don't even scratch the surface of his glorious character. They don't even touch it. 
We can't comprehend him. We, we, we cannot, in the fullest sense of the word, grasp his divine nature. We, and this drives some people crazy. I've seen it. They go off the theological deep end. They, they can't handle the tension of not knowing that which is unknowable. And so what happens is, instead of just being okay with that tension, even praising God for his incomprehensibility, which makes him God and us not God, instead of us just being okay with that tension and saying, I don't know why he's filled my, my life with such pain and affliction, but I know he's sovereign, so he's not unaware of this or in it. I don't know why such overwhelming evil runs rampant in this world, but I know he is all righteous and just, so I trust that all wrongs will be made right. I don't know how he did this. How could I possibly explain in mere human terms how all things came into being? But I do know that he's all powerful, so I know it's possible. Instead of just being okay with this, and perhaps in an attempt to settle that tension in their own tormented hearts, or maybe just in a grandiose display of their own arrogance, they end up typically, at best, reading their own assumptions, inclinations, and desires into the truths of, that, that are revealed, the scriptures, or, at worst, distorting and misrepresent, misrepresenting the very character of God, the sovereign God of the heavens and the earth, misrepresenting his characters, and teaching others to do the same. Darkening the counsel of God, spewing words without knowledge onto the everlasting souls of those who come into our churches. That's what they're doing. May may the Lord protect us from falling prey to such folly here as, as we enter into the testimony of the creation of the heavens and the earth. Lord, protect the hearts of the hearers. Protect the words of the speaker. Because unfortunately, this is an area, Genesis chapter 1, where words without knowledge have been spoken, written, preached, and even believed in abundance. In abundance. And specifically, in the areas of one the age of the universe, and two, his ability to create the heavens and the earth ex nihilo from nothing in six literal 24-hour days before resting on the seventh for an example to his people. May the Lord protect us from the capitulation to and regurgitation of words without knowledge. And what's the best way to do that? Well, the elders of Lakewood Bible Chapel feel the best way to combat the dangers of this flock falling victim to words without knowledge is to, again, go back to the primary source of the revelation of the knowledge of God, which he has produced for us, and that is the Scriptures. The Scriptures. We have to examine the Scriptures. We have to examine the text. We have to exposit them according to their plain, literal meaning. Okay? At the end of the day, we just have to say, here's what the text says. Here's what the text says. In other words, for something this important, we must 
be intentional to avoid the temptation not to contemplate, but to speculate, okay? To theorize, to hypothesize in our wisdom, lest we, like Job's friends, mistakenly attribute traits and characteristics to God's divine nature that aren't actually there. Or, as is much more common today, to read things into the text that aren't actually there. Example? I'm just going to give you one example today. Just a few days ago, I was sitting right over there. I had a huge portion of this sermon uh, devoted to the explanation and refutation of this theory and that theory, the atheistic evolutionary theory, the theistic evolutionary theory, the Big Bang theory, the progressive Progressive creationism theory, the framework theory, the gap theory, and on and on it went. Finally, I just said to go through all these theories would be a waste of everyone's time. I called Chris, and I called Thomas, and I I said, I don't want to shortchange anybody here. Should I go through all these theories? And they said, no, that would be a waste of everybody's time (laughs) on Sunday morning. Now, I can assure you, there's no need to feel shortchanged here. There are resources upon resources of men much smarter than I am on all sides who can do a far greater justice than their explanations and refutations, which are available at our fingertips at a moment's notice. I can send them to you. Many great resources. Believe me, I've been entrenched in them for months. I've got theories coming out of my ears. You can't see them, but trust me, they're there. I'm going to give you one example, though. Okay, just one example, using our text this morning. One example of how twisted things can get when you just don't interpret this text in its plain, literal sense. And instead, try to interject the wisdom and knowledge of man into it. Go back to Genesis 1, okay? Genesis 1. Just one example, because this is so pervasive in our churches. So pervasive. Look at this in your own Bibles. Verses 1 and 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was formless and void. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. The Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Now for thousands upon thousands of years, Jews, Christians, faithful men and women of God throughout the millennia have been taking these two verses in their literal biblical chronology, just as you just read it there, all together. Verse 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, speaking of God's creative acts of the whole universe in summary form. There was nothing, he made everything. The whole universe, summary. Verse 2. Here's what the first stages of the creation of the earth just mentioned looked like. That's all it says, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Verse verse 2, and the earth, the whole planet as we know it, was at this point formless. It was without form. It was like a preformed lump of clay. It's there. The elements are all there. They were created ex nihilo back in verse 1, but it wasn't yet shaped. It hadn't yet been formed. And filled, right? It hadn't yet been prepared for human habitation in verse 2, right? That happens in verse 3 through 19. Then God said, let there be light, let there be an expanse, let there be land, let there be vegetations and animals, and so on and so on and so on. That will happen if we just keep reading. Just keep reading. But for right now, formless. 
void, without shape, empty, uninhabited. That's what this means. Moses then says, darkness was over the deep. Well, what does darkness mean? Well, it means no light. You've been to space lately? Other than the stars, the moon, and the the planets, many which reflect and refract the light of the sun, it's pretty dark out there. In its elemental form, before Moses goes on to explain how light came into being next week, Lord willing, he says the earth was dark. And the darkness was over the surface of the deep. Now, what is the surface? What's the deep here? Okay, let's look at the deep. The word for deep in the the Hebrew is the word tehom, which will later most always refer to the ocean depths. But remember, we're we're formless right now, right? We're still in formless land here in Genesis 1-2a, according to its plain, literal interpretation, that is. Which means the elemental formless state of the planet, this planet Earth included the same primary element that will go on to make up the oceans, which is what? What makes up the oceans? Water. Water. And would you look at what Moses said under the divine inspiration of the Holy Spirit in the very next words, in its most basic, plain, easy-to-understand language, the Spirit of God was hovering moving over the surface of the waters. There they are, the waters. The Hebrew word, M-A-Y-I-M, pronounced my, tehom, deep, my, waters. And the spirit of the triune God who has always existed eternally with infinite knowledge, infinite wisdom, infinite power was there hovering over the surface of the water. Now, what did this look like? I don't know. Anyhow, the writer of Proverbs, speaking of the foreknowledge of God, says this. Yahweh possessed me at the beginning of his way, before his deeds of old. From everlasting I was installed, from the beginning, from the earliest times of the earth. When there were no depths, Tehom, I was brought forth. When there were no springs heavy with water, my, before the mountains were settled, before the hills, I was brought forth. While he had not yet made the earth and the fields outside, nor the first dust of the world, when he established the heavens, I was there. When he marked out a circle on the face of the deep, Tehom, on the one hand, <clears throat> the profundity, excuse me, and complexity of a formless earth is so difficult for us to imagine. I mean, this is the same earth we've lived our whole lives on. We walk upon this earth. We sleep upon this earth. We live upon this earth. We can hardly imagine such a thing in our finiteness and our human reasoning. <clears throat> but on the other hand, it's oh so easy to understand. It's so easy to believe in a once formless earth when you truly believe in the infinite wisdom and power of the one who would then go on to form it. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. The Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. It's so upfront. It's so straightforward. It's so clear. 
And it's been given to us right here in this first chapter in this most basic form by God as if he were to say, look, I'm putting this as simply and as plainly as I can so that whoever can pick this, whoever picks this book up, it doesn't have to be a pope, it doesn't have to be a priest, it doesn't have to be a seminary graduate or a doctor of ministry, it doesn't have to be any of these things. Whoever picks up this book can pick it up and read it and say, there was a point where nothing existed except for God. Then this same everlasting eternal God created everything, including the very globe that I'm standing upon right now reading these words. But at one point, it wasn't a circle. It wasn't a sphere. It was just elements. There was water. He was present. He was there. And as I peek down the page a little bit, he's just about to bring light, shape, fill it with his creatures, including my great, 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 great grandparents. Yep, wouldn't you know it? He goes on in the next 29 verses to tell me just how he did it. All I need to know about creation is right here. It's so complex, so incomprehensible, yet so basic. So easy if, by the power of his spirit, you just take him at his word. Just take him at his word. But that's not the world that we all live in, is it? Because those human counselors, these enlightened experts, always seem to come along declaring their take on things. And they say, you know, we found these bones. We found a way to to calculate and measure distances in space. We've got this new carbon dating system that not only disproves the idea that creation came into being instantly and thousands of years ago, but it actually disproves the idea of a creator altogether. What really happens, according to those who hate their creator, want to eliminate their creator so they don't have to then be accountable to their creator. It's a fact. What really happened, they say, is that the beginning of the universe as we know it started with an infinitely hot and dense single point that inflated and stretched First at unimaginable speeds, and then at a more measurable rate over the next 13.7 billion years to the still-expanding cosmos that we know today. you got to love that point seven. It's just, it's so cute. That's what you're going with? That's your take on the universe? Nothing got hot? Started stretching and randomly turned into something? Now there's everything? And yet they laugh at the Christian for, what they would, for believing in what they would call our invisible sky daddy. Which isn't actually that bad, theologically speaking. I don't get offended. Okay, you got me there. But they, they, they laugh at us for believing what we believe while they go on living any way they please, betting the destination of their everlasting souls on this theory before they grow old and die. What a tragic and pathetic waste. How can this be? Well, Paul tells us. For even though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or give thanks, but became futile in their thoughts. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the likeness of corruptible man and of birds and of four-footed animals, And crawling creatures. You know, it's interesting you say that, Paul. I read an interview from Stephen J. Gould back in 
from back in 2000, a Harvard paleontologist who is regarded as, quote, an eminent authority on how life began. You put his picture up there, Jake? Yeah, he's dead now. He died two years after this interview. Here's what this eminent authority said, and I'm not kidding. We exist because one odd group of fishes had a peculiar fin anatomy that could transform into legs for terrestrial creatures because the earth never froze entirely during an ice age because a small and tenuous species arising in Africa a quarter of a million years ago has managed so far to survive by hook and crook. We may yearn for a higher answer, but none exists. Fish fins transforming into legs in Africa 250,000 years ago? Okay. Now, here's the problem. Instead of Christians hearing such ridiculous theories like this, or the one that says that all of existence came into being after nothing exploded and during a cosmic hot yoga session 13.7 billion <laughs> years ago, and laughing, like you all just did, instead of us laughing at the ridiculousness of these hypotheses and saying, look how much simpler the inspired text of God is, instead of laughing at them, many in the church scramble to accommodate these godless theories by by taking these scientific findings and then inserting religious theories of their own into the text thus proving themselves to be no better than Job's friends, who darkened counsel by words without knowledge. Divine knowledge, that is. Oh, we got plenty of humanistic knowledge around here. But I'm not talking about human knowledge. I'm talking about divine knowledge, infinite knowledge, like who are you type of knowledge. Like were you there type knowledge. We should be mocking such foolishness, calling it out for what it is, ridiculous, insanity, blasphemy, but we don't. Instead, we got folks who look like little middle schoolers longing to sit at the cool kids table saying, yeah, you know, let's not be so quick to take those verses one and two together. Let's, let's hear these experts out a little bit. There's a, there's a possibility here that that we can find, we can scrounge up the millions and billions of years that these guys are talking about. And we can find them right here in that little white space in between verses 1 and 2. Oh yeah, all we have to do is just twist the meaning of these words just a little bit, just a little tweak. For example, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Okay, we can accept that. We'll give you that. There is a creator. But we're going to take that word and there at the beginning of verse 2. We're just going to drop that. Not important. Actually, no, let's make that say now. There are a few examples of this used elsewhere. Let's do that. Okay, that that eliminates the consecutive nature of the text. What that does is open up the possibility for a gap, a time gap. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Gap, 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 gap. Unspecified time gap. Now, the earth was formless and void. Ooh. That's not going to work. That was there. Let's go ahead and switch that to became. Because again, it's used elsewhere in other parts of the Old Testament. Let's do it here. So now, it's now. The earth became formless and void. 
Mm, I don't like that. Where else do we see these words? How else can we phrase this? Oh, Isaiah 24, Isaiah 45. Ruined and desolate. That's better. This was a wasteland. It was chaotic. It was chaos. The earth was in a chaotic state. That must mean it was under the divine judgment of God. Now, we all know that God would never create something in chaos, so he must have had to reform the earth. He had to reconstruct the earth. There's our justification for switching was to become, by the way, but how can we pull that one off? Ooh, darkness. Perfect. Darkness is there. That's symbolic of sin and death. God is light. In him is no darkness. That must mean that there was sin at this point. But the cool kids will say that animals hadn't fully evolved yet. Uh, How are we going to get past this here? Oh, I know. Satan fell. When Satan fell, part of his punishment and his precursed curse was that he was relegated to becoming God of the earth. Then all these animals and fish fin legs and stuff kind of evolved over time. But then they died, which explains the carbon dating, the fossil records. And then someone says, uh, well, what do you mean? Death entered into the world before Adam? What about Romans 5? To which some of them would say, and I'm not kidding you here. This is not a joke. Yeah, there was a, a, a pre-Adamic civilization. And then you just have to stop and walk away. This is what I've been consuming for these past couple of months, just these insane interpretive gymnastics performed to varying degrees by even some of really, really surprising names. Reputable theologians and preachers over the past couple hundred years, not all going to the lengths I just mentioned. Those are real. Those are real theories. But again, to some degree, A.W. Pink, billions of years. C.S. Lewis, billions of years old. C.I. Schofield, billions of years. Big proponent of gap theory, right? James Montgomery Boyce, oh, billions of years. That was a gut punch. He's one of my favorites. All these heavyweights who have basically said, yeah, you know, based on the discoveries, based on the scientific discoveries we've seen come out over these past couple hundred years, meaning... All Jews and Christians who have always held to the age of the earth being less than 6,000 years got it wrong. Based on these scientific discoveries, one must leave the door open to at least the possibility that there could be a gap of billions of years somewhere there in between verses 1 and 2, to which I would say, no, we don't. We don't have to believe that. Personally, I reject it. Fully. Now, does that mean we're anti-science? Of course not. We're grateful for science. Many wonderful contributions from science. Technology, advance, technolo- t- technology advancements in medicine, uh, archaeological discoveries, space exploration. It's awesome. So many wonderful facets of science. We're not anti-science. We're just anti any scientific theory that forces us to compromise on the plain, literal interpretation of the inspired text to justify it. Now, if you want to believe in the old earth theories, you can. Go for it. Again, you've got some great company here. 
Now, <clears throat> not all their arguments are, cra- are crazy, by the way. Some of them make some really convincing arguments. That, that's your choice. I don't think it's a salvific issue at all. But boy, once you start messing with the text like that, it's a slippery slope. All I'm saying is, you ain't going to hear it here. Okay? Why? Because I have to stand before God to give an account for what I teach your everlasting souls from this pulpit. And frankly, I don't have the guts to, to base what I say here on the theories of man. I just need to say, here's what he said. Now, we're going to examine this account according to its plain, literal meaning, just as we do the rest of the Scripture. We're going to take it at face value because we believe this is the best interpretive method for protecting this body against words without wisdom. I'm going to be just a skosh long here. <laughs> if anyone needs to leave, I totally understand. You know, I mentioned this earlier, but God never did tell Job or his friends the reason for his suffering. At least not in this text. He didn't say, well, I allowed you to be tested and tempted. I used your calamity to prove to Satan that you would remain faithful to me. I used you and your allegiance and suffering as an example for faithful men and women throughout the ages. No, he didn't say that. Because in the end, the point of the book of Job is not how we should respond in times of suffering. The point of the book of Job is God's ways are higher than our ways. And his thoughts higher than our thoughts. I want you to think about this. Anytime someone hits you with the latest theory or extra biblical teaching on the character of the Almighty. I want you to think back to Job 38. When he said, out of the whirlwind, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now, gird up your loins like a man, and I will ask you, I will, (laughs) thanks, (laughs) thank you, (laughs) now, (laughs) attaboy, way to gird him, now, Gird up your loins like a man, and I will ask you, and you make me know. Were you, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me, if you know understanding. Who set its measurements since you know? Or who stretched the line on it? Or what were its bases sunk? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Who enclosed the sea with doors when bursting forth it went out from the womb when I make a, made a cloud its garment and dense gloom its swaddling band and I placed boundaries on it and set bolts and doors and I said, thus far shall you come but no farther. Here shall your proud waves stop. Have you ever in your life commanded the morning and caused the dawn to know its place that it might seize the ends of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it? It is changed like clay under the seal and they stand forth like clothing from the wicked. Their light is withheld and the arm raised high is broken. 
Have you ever entered into the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you or have you seen the gates of the shadow of death? Have you carefully considered the expanse of the earth? Tell me if you know all this. Where is the way to where the light dwells and darkness? Where is its place that you may take it to its territory, that you may discern the paths to its home? You know... For you were born then, the number of your days is great. Gotta love that divine sarcasm. He'll go on like that for three more chapters. You should read it sometime. And then ask yourself if you still feel comfortable with blending the truths of God Almighty with the theories of sin-corrupted man. You know what Job ends up doing? He shuts his mouth, and he gives worship where worship is due. Maybe all of us should do the same. My brothers and sisters, I'll just be straight up with you this morning. If we're so quick to compromise on the foundations of our faith at the beginning, how can we possibly expect to stand strong as the rest of his testimony develops? All the... All of what we'll talk about in the coming months is constantly refuted by the experts of this world, by those who we're so quick to believe and take their ever-fluctuating word as inerrant instead of simply resting upon God's clear revelation. They'd say, God creating? Myth. From nothing? Myth. Six days? Myth. 6,000 years ago? Myth. Garden of Eden, myth. Adam and Eve, myth. Establishment and institution of marriage between one man, one woman, myth. Tree of life, myth. Temptation by a talking serpent, myth. Original sin of Adam, myth. Fall of man, myth. All mankind separated from God, cursed by God, myth, myth. Physical death brought on by sin entering the world through one man, myth. Promise of redemption and reconciliation to God, the defeat of Satan through the seed of a woman, myth. Worldwide flood, myth. Tower of Babel, myth. Abraham and Sarah conceiving at such an old age, nations of the world blessed through his seed, myth, myth. And it goes on and on and on, right through the very coming of the Son of God into the world. He spoke into existence with the word of his power. Eternal Son of God? Myth. Perfect plan of redemption for fallen humanity executed through him? Myth. Virgin birth? Myth. Sinless life? Myth. Miracles? Performing miraculous demonstrations of power over all the elements, including the sea and its waves and the wind, myth. Sight to the blind, hearing to the the deaf, tongues to the mute, legs to the lame, myth, 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 myth. Arrest and condemnation of the innocent God-man by the Jews, myth. Turned over to Pontius Pilate, myth. Brutal scourging and flogging of the Son of Man. Myth. Execution, uh, excruciating murder of the Christ by Roman crucifixion. 
Myth. Resurrection from the dead. Myth. Appearing to many witnesses. Hundreds of eyewitnesses. Not one eyewitness was there at the beginning of the creation of the heavens and the earth. But now we have hundreds of eyewitnesses seeing the resurrected Christ. Myth. Ascending back up to the right hand of the Father. Myth. Sending his spirit to indwell sinners. All men and women who would not question his every decree or or question the means by which he carries out his perfect plan of redemption, but sending his spirit to indwell those who believe, who believe his word, who believe in his glorious gospel of grace, in his majesty, in his perfections, his holiness, and marvel at the amazing grace that has been poured out on such undeserving, willful transgressors of his holy law, people who still to this day are being miraculously regenerated and transformed through the word and that same spirit who hovered over the surface of the waters. Myth. Salvation from the wrath of a holy God Salvation from an eternity in hell apart from the love of God forever and ever? Myth. Hell? Are you kidding me? Myth. Salvation to eternal glory with him forever and ever as we, we ourselves have been washed in the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, the sinless Son of God, the precious sacrificial Lamb of God have been made to be a new creation in Christ, made to be holy, justified in the sight of a holy God, all by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, the world would say, myth. And the fool would say, myth. There is no God, they would say. Certainly not one is capable or is powerful to do all this. What about you? I want you to think about that. What do you say? Because there's coming a day. I know this life seems long. But there's coming a day when you will breathe your last. And all this will mean nothing. The world as you're summoned to stand before the throne of God to give an account. The basis, the standard you will be measured against will be, did you believe my word? What I told you about myself in my word, did you believe it? Did you believe my gospel? What's your answer going to be? Now's the time to figure it out. Now's the time to think about it. By then it may be too late. I would implore you to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Turn from your sin. Turn to God. Believe his word and be saved today. That's how we're going to approach next week's text, Lord willing, and I hope you're all here to be a part of it. Amen? Let's pray and then we'll have Tim and the music team come up. Heavenly Father, we thank you. That doesn't even... It's not even sufficient. We're, we're, we're overwhelmingly humbled that you have given us the opportunity by your grace alone to 
open up these eternal truths and, and be strengthened by them, be conformed and informed and transformed by what you have revealed to us in your word. We're beyond grateful. It will take an eternity for us to give you the praise that you, that you deserved, and even then that won't be enough. But we long for it. We can't wait to see you face to face. So thankful for you. So thankful for your gospel. So thankful for your word. We love you. Praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.